and welcome to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. This is the podcast that ponders the question, Jewish mothers, should every home have one? My name's Angela Epstein. I'm Lynn Dover. Naomi Lopian. And uh, if you're looking for a parenting podcast, then please move along. This is not a place to learn about sleepless nights with babies. We are talking about the wisdom, the perspective of the Jewish mother as she's been viewed over the decades and whether there's something that we can bring to your lives and uplift you along the way. Today, we're extremely privileged, given the time in which we're recording this, which is barely a week after Hamas launched their unprovoked and murderous attack on Israel, to be speaking to Devorah Kay, who lost her son in a terrorist incident about two years ago. And Tavora has very, very kindly agreed, given that she's speaking now from a country which is under attack, to tell her own story and perhaps enlighten us on the whole perspective of being a Jewish mother in this situation and what you can bring to other people as well. So hello, Devora, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. So Devora, your son, Ellie, tell us what happened. Um, so Ellie um, was uh, working, had recently uh, relocated to Jerusalem after having lived um, in the South for a number of years after he finished the army service. Um, and he had relocated to Jerusalem and he had gotten a job at the Kotel, working for the Kotel Foundation. And um, he would go every day to work at the Kotel. And um, on this particular day of Sunday, the 21st of November, 2021, just uh, coming up for a second anniversary of his death, he walked to work like he did every other day, the same route that he always walked down through the Jaffa Gate and into the old city. And he went through the Arab quarter, the Arab shook, the Arab market that is very familiar to many of us because we walk it all the time. And... Um, as he was walking through there, a Hamas terrorist uh, gunned him down, opened fire, and he was the only fatality from the incident. And not only did he get taken from behind and shot numerous times, but after the Hamas terrorist passed him, lying there on the ground, he shot him through his head as well, even seeing him lying there. And um, Ellie was killed instantly. And basically, that's what happened. But what I do want to add, which I think um, brings us in a way quite a lot of comfort, so to speak, is the fact that there is video footage to show that this Hamas terrorist hung around outside a Jewish school, which also it borders the Arab quarter. And he hung around in the courtyard there while the children were playing with the weapon underneath his gown for 45 minutes, just watching these children. And for whatever reason, thank God, he decided to leave the school area and walk up the road and stood in a doorway. And as our son Ellie passed by, he opened fire. Um, he did try to open fire, you know, obviously more than just at Ellie. But thank God, um, no one else was killed. Uh, there were some injuries. And unfortunately, one of those injured is a uh, young man, newly married at the time, who was paralyzed from his waist down. But within 30 seconds, um, the terrorist was taken down by the police and the army in the area. So thank God he was not able to take his attack any further. When were you first aware of what happened? Where were you at the time? So I was first aware um, at about quarter past nine or about 9.30 in the morning. This happened just minutes before nine o'clock. My oldest son phoned and he said, do you know that there's been um, a Pigua, a terror attack in the old city? And have you heard from Ellie? And I said, 
well, no, I, I don't know. And it was kind of, as I say, our first day back to normality because we'd actually just celebrated our older son's wedding. And um, we just finished the Sheva Brachot. And this was like my first day kind of back into some kind of normalcy. And uh, I was sitting at my desk. I was uh, studying and I was like really quite focused. And I hadn't been checking on the news every 30 seconds like we are now. And um, I didn't actually know. So that was my first indication that there'd been an attack. We did not think for one second that Ellie was part of it, um, not even remotely. I called my daughter, who was studying right there in the old city. Her apartment, she was she was studying at Harava, at the Midrash at Harava, and her apartment was right there. And her friends had actually been in there and heard the gunshots. And we, you know, we started getting onto the phone to each other, but no one was particularly perturbed. And my daughter said to me, you know, I don't think Ellie's working today because it's raining. Because when it rained, you know, they didn't have to stand outside of the cartel the whole day. So that was our first inclination that something had happened. But we didn't really think anything too much of it. There was no panic or anything. And then we started from there, you know, trying to see if we could find him or get hold of him. And we actually thought that he was sleeping. And in the interim, then things started to happen and a bit of unease started to settle in. And my son ran off to, to Eddie's apartment and, and went to see if he was there. And my youngest son had just gotten back to his army base. He was in active duty at the time and he'd gone all the way down south. And, we, you know, he was like managing it from there. And my daughter was saying, well, should she go down to the cartel? Should she try find him? And we really didn't think all that much backwardsing and forwardsing a bit. And then at about 12 o'clock, hadn't heard anything. Uh, my son sent me a picture that had gone out on social media. And he said to me, I've just received this. It looks like Ellie. And it was a picture of a guy lying on the floor in a position that to me looked like he was injured. And I opened this picture. And at that point, my blood ran cold. I didn't know what I was thinking but my whole body kind of just froze. I just want to say that one of the reasons also that we were so sure that Ellie hadn't been involved was because of the news that was coming out, which is why I'm quite careful with how much I take from the news, because it said that a 30-year-old had been injured, and it said there were injuries. And then when it started to report that someone had died, it still kept it as a 30-year-old. So we were like, well, then that's definitely not Ellie, because Ellie's 25. So then it can't possibly be him. And in fact, at that point, when we saw this picture, I called my husband who had gone across the road to take our bicycles in because now life was returning to some kind of normality and we were going to start biking again. And um, I phoned him and I said, I think you need to come home. I've just been sent something. And he came home and he looked at the picture and he said, we don't know what we're dealing with, but let's make our way to Jerusalem. Let's just go. Let's head in that direction. And so we got into the car and we agreed to meet my daughter, Mamilla. In the interim, I'd phoned Ellie's girlfriend, Jen, chef, who assured me that Ellie had actually gone to work that morning. So then we started to be quite concerned because she was telling us that he'd gone, we can't get hold of him, but we were sure that he was injured. But if he was injured, why is he not answering his phone? So there was a lot of uncertainty, but I don't think we actually ever thought the worst because of what the news kept telling us. And I think we also, as parents, don't think the worst because we protect ourselves. I think that's very natural, particularly to mothers. We need to hold every, everyone and everything together and we don't let ourselves go places that we don't have to. And that was a big thing that, that I felt that let's just deal with this. We don't, we're in absolute disbelief. Made our way to Jerusalem, etc. And on the way, we were calling Hatzola and trying to find out if they knew anything. And lots of phone calls. And then my, my younger son who got back to base phoned and said they have someone who's unidentified at Haratzofim. I think you should go to Haratzofim. In the interim, 
my older son called us and he said, where are you? We said, we're getting to Mamilla. He said, wait for me there. I'm coming with the policeman. We said, okay, fine. Can you tell us anything? And he said, no, but I'm meeting you there with a the policeman. We got there and he jumped in the car and I said to him, where's the policeman? He said, oh, well, forget the policeman. Let's just go to Harasafim. And while we're sitting there in the car, I'm taking this picture that I've been sent and my daughter's now in the car and Jen is in the car and my son's in the car, my husband and I, and I'm showing this picture to my daughter. And I said, look, here's a picture of Ellie. He must be fine because he's lying there and he's been injured, obviously, and everything's going to be okay because the guy who's killed is 30. And this is how the conversation goes all the way to the hospital. And my older son says, absolutely nothing. He's just busy organizing. In the interim, what transpired, and when we got to the hospital, we he told me, no, someone's coming to meet us. And we were waiting and we're waiting and no one's coming. And he's on the phone waiting for someone to come meet us. And we're still waiting outside for about 15 minutes. We waited outside. My husband had to go find parking and they wouldn't let him park. And we just thought we were coming to see our injured child and they were going to operate. We heard something about operation. And then eventually my husband finds a park and, and this person who was supposed to meet us 15 minutes ago meets us and we get taken into a room. And at that point, my older son takes us into the room, puts his arms around us and tells us the news. And basically he had found out by running around like a crazy man from police station to police station with Ellie's ID numbers to Huda uh, Zuhud saying, can I have information? They were like, well, who are you? He says, this is my brother. And the one police station that he ended up in um, there on Jaffa, he was holding, he saw the policeman's phone and he saw Ellie's ID number. And he said, why have you got that ID number? It's my brother. And they told him there and then. And from the time that they told him the news, all the time that he came to meet us at Mamilla, that he sat in the car, that he heard me talking to my daughter, that he took us to the hospital, that he sat with, stood outside waiting for the social worker who was going to break the news. He knew what had happened, but yet he didn't want us to know yet in a place that we weren't safe. He said he could only tell us in a place that he wanted us to be able to manage and not have to then drive from there. So this is at about, uh, must have been at about half past one. So from all this time, no one told us. And we, 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 found, we literally tracked Ellie across Jerusalem. And basically that's how, we, um, that's how we heard the news. Needless to say, my youngest son was on his base all the way south. So my older son called him and told him basically at that point that he needs to come and that this is what's happened. And he had, you know, it took him a little bit of time to get himself into action. And he got on a bus, actually, public transport to um, come to meet us. And um, unfortunately, he didn't get to the hospital before Ellie's body left. But um, he did get there. Devorah, as anybody who is a humanitarian would think, what, why, what a waste of a beautiful life. But as his mother... Can you even begin to tell us what was going through your mind when you heard that it was definitely Ellie and, and that your beautiful boy had been taken from you in these savage and most brutal and pointless way? I think, um, as I maintain, and I have maintained since that time, that on hearing the news, aside from the um, immense shock I went into, I turned to my family and I said to them, we will be okay. We will be okay. We will get through this. And I think that that has been kind of the mantra um, that I myself have carried with me from that time. I do not have any of the answers as to why. 
I cannot even process the idea that the meaning of life sometimes has to end at a young age. But I do believe in my heart of hearts that Ellie accomplished more in his 25 years in this world than some people accomplish in a lifetime. And I am so grateful for that. And I feel that Ellie has left us with a legacy and a job that we need to do and that we need to impart and that we need to be part of in the land of Israel. And one of the reporters asked me during the week of Shiva and he said to me, so where are you going now? Are you going to leave? And I said to him, where am I going? Who's going to have us? This is the Jewish people. These are our people. Where are we off to? They get it. They're with us. And I think what was so overwhelming for us, I mean, just to put it in, in perspective here, we'd only made Aliyah 10 months before. We'd made Aliyah in the heart of COVID into our hotel room, locked up with the threat of a 5,000 shekel fine for leaving our room. That was mm -hmm. our welcome to Israel. Where had you come from? We'd come from South Africa. Uh, so we grew up, but we brought, we brought up our family in South Africa. I myself grew up in London. And then um, together with my husband, we brought up our family in South Africa. And one by one, Ellie being the first, our children had come to Israel and served in the IDF and worked here and lived here. And we basically followed our kids, but we'd had a heck of a 10 months. And now this kind of landed on us in a way that we had absolutely no idea what to do, what was going on, who to call, what it meant with thousands and thousands. I mean, you know, we had 17,000 people at Ellie's funeral. I don't know 17,000 people. And it was just an, uh, unbelievable. So I think really that the, the, the sentiment from the beginning was there and it was strong. I can't kind of really go to, well, and obviously I have over time, like why he was taken and what the purpose is. There has to be on, uh, from my side, some kind of acceptance that this has what happened and I'm seeing a tiny picture of it. So you, you mentioned that Ellie accomplished an enormous amount in just 25 years. So build, if you could, for us a picture of, of your son, one of four children, do you say? So tell us a bit about your family and about the boy that Ellie was and what he achieved. Okay, so Ellie was the second oldest. Um, I have three boys and a girl. My, my daughter is my youngest. And uh, the two boys were very close in age, the older two that were 20 months apart. And from a very young age, Ellie showed a deep love for Israel. In fact, because we just made Aliyah, I had all these things packed up so nicely. I had his reports from when he was at school. And there's a grade one report, which means he would have been six years old. And on that report card, there's a picture of the Israeli flag on the one side and the South African flag on the other side. And that was Elliot Seven with this deep passion and love for Israel, but yet knowing that his home country was South Africa. And then in that same year, there's another picture that he drew that I have amongst his things, which was of the like kind of like the old the walls around the old city. And so we believe that from a very, very young age, he had this deep love for Israel. And uh, my husband is, I say, secretly passionately Zionistic because I believe that uh, when we were uh, going to get married and we got I was very young when we got married and my father said to my husband um so so where are you thinking of living and my husband said israel and uh my father said you know uh, i suppose in part joke he said not married to my daughter you're not how are you going to make a living and i guess 
almost 30 years ago, that was a very true and a big question because life in Israel was very, very different. And so we settled in South Africa, but the passion and the love and the intense desire to live in the land of Israel has uh, come from my husband um, and I guess filtered through. And uh, we always say that Ellie was, was such a naughty little boy. You know, he was he had this balance of being this blonde haired, blue eyed, angel looking kid. But he really tested our, our patience and our limits. He was very passionate about music. He has uh, a number of, of guitars and um, a lot of the videos that we have now of him are in composing and songs that he's written and books that I have of his writing. He was very passionate. Um, he was a good friend. Um, he was a leader. Um, and he excelled at school in the end, of course, up until the last minute we weren't breathing over if he was going to get through. And then he you know, got all his, his A's in the end because that's just what our children do to us. They push us along until we think they're never going to achieve and then they surprise us by like literally shining in what they what they do. Ellie was also an avid reader, absolutely loved reading all my books that we have, whether it was Holocaust, uh, which was a very big area of interest of his, Israel, Jews in Israel life, the his, history of Israel was very, very interested in history. He did history for you know his matric year and had a really deep understanding of what goes on here what's gone on here the history of Israel so that was so he was a very well-rounded um we are a Chabad family he grew up in a Chabad family could you explain what that means for our listeners so Chabad is a sect of Hasidim there are groups of Hasidim which are um, followers of sects of Judaism and Chabad is the Lubavitch uh, sect that has particular customs and um, ideas and the learning of Hasidut, of philosophy, that uh, one grows up with and that follows. The following is after the the Chabad rabbis uh, who have played a very prominent role in the sect. Uh, the last one being uh, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of blessed memory, uh, who was for worldwide jury a very, very um, huge figure uh, who touched Jews non and many, many non-Jews as well who used to come to him and and, and make requests and, and get his blessing. And um, it's really about a particular philosophy of acceptance and broad-mindedness and uh, non-judgmentalism that accompanied my children through their upbringing. Chabad is known for its love of other Jews. It's all about making this world a better place and acceptance of, of others through bringing light into the world and doing as many mitzvot, good deeds as possible. And that is the ideology and the philosophy that was in our home and that my children, completing school, Ellie decided, even though none of the other boys in his class were going to come to Israel to study, he was coming. And I think that's one thing when I say that he left us with a lot of lessons, when we speak to birthright groups in particular, it's this idea that really Ellie had everything he could have wanted in South Africa. We had a big home, we had a swimming pool, we had a garden, we had the luxury of domestic help. He was lacking and my other children for absolutely nothing. And yet he decided that there were things that he needed for his own life and for his own development. And this idea of coming to Israel was very much uppermost in his mind. And he told us that he's going to make Aliyah. And he told us categorically that he's going to go into the Israeli army and he's going to serve because this is our Jewish state and this is what he believed in. And he was very definite about that. And I always think about how he got on the plane and we didn't at that point have the funds really to like bring our children, you know, to the next 
stage of their life and travel with them to Israel and set them up over here and literally got on Ethiopian air, arrived in Israel at 4 a.m. in the morning, got himself a taxi, got to my husband's aunt who lives in Haranoff, sorted himself out, got himself the bedding and everything else, and he took himself off to a yeshiva, to a learning institution, to start his, his learning in a Hebrew-speaking environment. And he was alone in that, you know, no one else was doing it. And we certainly weren't there to, obviously on the other end of the phone, but we, were, we weren't here to do that for him. And I think that this idea that leaving the, the comforts and the mollycoddle that we try to provide for our children is something that we've really encouraged our children to do. Um, this independence and doing things because this is what they feel is important to them and giving them their space to yeah. do that is is something that we really encourage and we feel is very important and not to give in to the peer pressure of just because everyone else is doing it or I must stay in South Africa because that's what my friends are doing. No, if there is meaning in your life that you want to follow and that you feel is important, go for it. And we as parents had to learn that we have to let go. We have to let our children go. And when he went from that tract and, and told us he was going to the army and he was going into the Tzanchanim, the paratroopers unit, which, you know, is, is a pretty esteemed unit in the army and he worked very, very hard to get in there. We had to let him do that because that was meaningful. That was meaningful to him and it was meaningful to us. And we were very proud of him doing that, even though there were times where it was very stressful for us at the other end of the phone and where he told us, the rockets are falling. Um, we've got, you know, less than three seconds to get into our shelter. He became a commander in the Tzanchanim unit. And his soldiers said to him, you know, are we going to live or are we going to die? And he said, I don't know, but we're going to do our best. And the reason that so many people knew Eli is because of this trait of his, where he touched so many young lives and so many people and connected with so many people that we're literally meeting people all the time who he had some connection to. And not only from the army, but wherever it is, if I may interject at this point with just to give you an idea that connects to this and bring in something current at the moment um, of just two incidents that we had this week. In fact, one was last week and one was this week, where we see how far Ellie's name and reputation and who he was spread. Um, the one was actually just on Sukkot when we went on a hike. And we arrived at this place called Nachal Prat, which is some, a place that was very, very dear to Eli's heart. And we um, came to the gate and, and uh, my husband said, oh, I don't have my credit card. And I said, no, my daughter has it. She always, you know, borrows his credit card for safekeeping. So I said, don't worry, give the lady your phone and use Apple Pay. You know, we're still a bit antiquated with these things. So he said, okay, okay, I'll give, gave her the phone. And after the payment went through, she held his phone and just before giving it back, his screenshot came up. And in that picture is my daughter and Ellie together. Um, and Ellie in uniform. And the, the young woman behind the counter, she said, you're his parents? We said, yes. She said, I knew him. I was with him two weeks before he died. And she wanted to keep talking to us, but we had a whole line of people behind us trying to get in. It was Chol HaMoed, yeah, Sukkot, which is, you know, the festival of Sukkot, where there's everyone goes on, on day trips here. And she wanted to just talk to us and, and tell us about him and how she knew him. I mean, what are the chances that we we're about to come on this hike? And there's Ellie saying, this is my place. I love this place. And hi from, from here. So that was just out of the blue, someone, you know, who we met. And, and this week, um, my daughter is currently in the IDF. She's in a combat unit. And obviously, at the time in Israel, she is where she needs to be. 
and um, the other night she was doing guard duty and one, uh, there was a car coming round and she stopped the car and at that point they were able to have their phones more freely. That has somewhat changed now and she said to the guy who introduced himself, he said, I'm part of the unit, etc. She said, do you mind if I just charge my phone so that I can be in touch with my family from time to time? And he took her phone and he charged it and then he brought it back to her and he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't help noticing your picture. Are you Ellie Kay's sister? And she said, yes. And he said, I knew him. I was at his funeral. I was at the Shiva, the, the morning. I knew him and she, he went on to tell my daughter, stuck there in the God knows where in the middle of the night, stories about her brother. And this is something that happens all the time, whether it's an ex-student of mine messaging me right after he was killed to say, I just saw him the other week, he helped me carry my packages up to my apartment, or whether it is the story that went viral about Ellie in the shoes, where he paid for a guy's shoes without knowing who he was behind him in the line, which is perhaps a story for another time, or it can be found online. There's so many stories where I feel he has left us so many lessons to be able to pass on, whether it's when I'm in the UK and going into schools and speaking to the youth who are coming to Israel and saying to them, okay, do you think it's all about pizza and falafel? And they say, yes. And by the time you walk out of the classroom and you've spoken about what's important in Israel, fighting for the country, growing the land, working in the land, and I've told them all those elements of Ellie's story, which I've kind of skipped out half to get to what I'm telling you now, and they're like, wow, you're right. People are doing this in 2023. They are still going and giving up two and a half years, so to speak, of their life to fight for the Israeli army and to be well-trained so that when crises happen, like unfortunately we are going through right now, they are there to protect us. Working the land, which Ellie did for two years in agriculture and living in the South and planting and growing and working with youth. These are living things. And this idea that it's not just our history, it's our present and it's our future. It's something that our youth of today need to hear. And these are lessons that we need them to hear. Devora, obviously Ellie left the most enormous footprint just by those two stories. As you say, there must be hundreds of people that knew him, this extraordinary young man. But your spirit of acceptance is overwhelming. But how are you able to reconcile somebody who was so good with the seismic size of the loss that you experienced? Because obviously you said, Okay, as the mother, we're going to accept this. It's not going to splinter the family. We're going to grow. But you're only a human being. And how did you, as an individual, maybe when you're not trying to hold the fort for the whole rest of the family, how have you and how did you cope in those dark days from the funeral onwards? Interestingly enough, I would say that almost two years on, the harder days are now, as in within the last year, more so in a way than afterwards, because afterwards we were so galvanized into action and doing and being, and we had everyone with us and we were on a mission and a purpose. And often, and I've read quite a lot about this, the second year of loss and mourning is so much harder than the first year. So firstly, I want to say upfront and openly, that not every day is easy. Not every day is a walk in the park and not every day is a positive and wonderful experience. 
But I have to also say that I, in the person that I am, and have been before this, and please God will be able to have the strength going forward, I am not a person who gets into bed and pulls the cover over their heads. It's not my personality. I can't do that. And that doesn't mean to say that there haven't been difficult days, but I feel them almost coming on. And I also know during that time that I will come out of it. And just to give you a very personal example was my most recent one like that, which was on the eve of Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement, which is a very big day in the Jewish calendar where everything is decided for the next year. It's going to be sealed off as to what happens. And when I woke up on the eve of that morning, the day before, I felt this coming on. I felt this kind of feeling that I'm not going to be able to necessarily put one foot in front of the other today. And I'm not sure if I'm going to get it together. And I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to cook that meal that I need to get together. One thing I realized is that I've got to ride the wave that day. And the one thing I do do on days like that is I disconnect from my phone. I find the phone very debilitating. I find having to be there for everybody very challenging. And I put out to my kids, or I do via my husband to say, guys, I'm not with it today. I'm just not feeling it. I'm sorry I'm not so available, but no, I'm okay. And I will come through. But today is just not a great day for me. And I allow it to happen. And I found on that day that the tears were just falling from my eyes. I don't even know why they were there. I don't know what it was, and I can't say to you it was specifically this or that. I think it's the greatness of the day that is so huge. And I just rode the wave. And very kindly, the family that our son, who, who very familiar with all the people in Manchester, has married into were very kind to offer us, you know, to come to them for the pre-fast meal, etc. And I realized that I just can't do that today. I can't do people. And my husband was very understanding. And my daughter felt quite bad because she was going to go away for Yom Kippur to Jerusalem. And she said, Ma, do you mind if I go? And I said, you must go. I will come out of this. But it's at a sense of being in touch with myself on that day. And it's such an important thing to acknowledge when we go through these hard times, to know that it's okay to go through that time. And it would be abnormal to not go through that time, but to also know that it will lift. And I made the decision to not go to shul, to not go to the synagogue that night for Kol Nidre, because I was going to a place where there was a lot of people that I knew and I couldn't bear the looks. One thing I can't stand is pity. I'm not a pity person. When I get there, when people have that, that, you know, that puppy dog eyes towards me, uh, that's the one that wants to make me run away because no one must pity me. I'm not pitiful. My son, like unfortunately many others, people have lost children all the time, but I do not want to be pitied because that's not what I represent and I don't want to be seen like that. And I realized that being there and doing this prayer with so many other people was not a good space for me. And so I got together a bunch of reading material that was interesting to me that I felt could be an inspiration to me. And after saying the bits of prayers that I, I felt were something I could manage, I read and I looked at articles that I hadn't had a chance to look at. And the next morning I was feeling better and I could once again put myself out there and be with it. And after the fast, I actually sat down at my computer and I put together some of the things I'd read on that night of Yom Kippur. 
some of the inspirational stories, some of the things that had resonated, some of the thoughts I had, because I think it's very important to document how we're feeling and things that inspire us, because it's not always easy. The easier times get more than the not so easy times. That's what we're looking for. You absolutely seem to have not a crumb or a grain of anger towards other people or people on the other side or the situation. Is it just the front or have you managed to shed that particular emotion for your own benefit as well as presumably everybody around you too? So for me, hatred has no place in my life. It does not achieve anything. It is not a positive trait for me to have and it doesn't assist me with anything. I have no space for it and I didn't from the beginning. It's a very strange thing to say that I hold no anger. Maybe at some point it will come down the line. Maybe this is all still very fresh. Maybe I've chosen to channel what I do into different areas and to use my head again and to go back to studying and to take everything that has happened and try to use it to help others. I don't have hatred. And I'm speaking very personally. I'm not speaking on behalf of my family because if you ask other members, I believe they are definite feelings of it. But I don't know what to do with hatred because hatred is something that is going to hold me back. And I don't have space for an emotion that is going to hold me back. And I'm not saying this to be a martyr. I'm saying it 100% honestly. I, Devorah Kay, do not have hatred. I don't know why. I don't know when it's going to hit me. One thing I can tell you, though, is that I choose to not walk past the place that Ellie was killed. Whereas it's a place that my husband frequents all the time because he subsequently does work at the Kotel once a week. I can't go there. I feel evilness there. I feel impurity and I feel hatred there. And it's not a good place for me to be. I have been there. I was there on the first yard site on the first anniversary of Ellie's death. And I've been there one other time. But I will not go there by choice because it does nothing for me. It doesn't help me or anything that I want to be involved in, in any way. And that's honestly how I feel about hatred. I admire how you recognize and understand your feelings with yourself and I also admire your courage to share these feelings with your family because as a mum we always feel like what you said keep the family hold the family together and to let your adult children know that it's okay for mum not to be okay and mum will get through this I think that's a very powerful lesson and a very honest lesson and I wanted to ask you something also perhaps personal that you said on Yom Kippur you read um, a lot of articles and you wrote down some that inspired you and helped you out and lift or that remained with you and, and lifted you. Would you share one of them with us or something that really struck you? So quite interestingly, one of the magazines that I hadn't had a chance to, to look at yet was the Mizrahi magazine on the Yom Kippur War, which was a bit bizarre considering that war has broken out here not that much later. And I really read into that and I found that very, very interesting. For me, so just a little bit of background is that I've been in education for, for close on 30 years. I was a teacher and a high school teacher and involved in um, informal education. But um, for many years, I've had an, an interest in the area of psychology. I think working with youth just gives that to you automatically. And I actually went back to school to complete a psychology degree. And I was doing it when we made Aliyah. And subsequently, I've actually continuing it in Israel in an Israeli university. So for me, a lot of the inspirational stuff that I find is also about this belief 
that I have in this area of psychology. And so therefore, uh, uh, sorry if some of these things that I find inspirational are not necessarily um, things that maybe other people would, uh, it's not your typical inspiration. But for me, the ability to see people overcome difficulties by using the brain to train our brain to be able to do things that we thought impossible. And in one of the, the magazines, there was a, a talk about this with um, one of these, these TED talks that the chief rabbi, the late rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs spoke about, about a, a man who'd had a stroke and was able to then reteach himself and reuse his brain uh, to get the right side of his brain working. And these are the kind of things that interest me in, in psychology a lot, that we have so much power within ourselves to be able to create new synapses that can assist us in helping ourselves. And often we underestimate how much ability we have within ourselves. And if we could just access that and tap into that, we could help ourselves so much. So that was the one thing I went and read about over this time. But perhaps one of the other things I read about, which is very relevant, um, was a phrase that I saw that was written by Dov Indig, who was an idealistic Hesder student who was killed in the Yom Kippur War. And he'd written before the war, he said, life with an ideal worth dying for is a life worth living. And this idea that Jewish blood is no longer cheap and that every soldier has sacrificed and every victim of terror is properly felt uh, as such a huge loss. And he spoke about this idea that if the state of Israel is a Jewish state in which the life and the culture and the spirit of the Jewish people are being renewed, in which the Jewish people are strengthening their Jewish identity and developing it, then it's worth living here and even fighting if necessary and even dying for it if it is so decreed. And this was really something that resonated because my youngest daughter is in the army and she is almost at the end of her service, please God, and she is in an active combat unit. And right now, my two sons have also been called up as uh, reservists and they are actively um, you know, fighting this war in the South at the moment. And one thing that my youngest son said to me after Ellie was killed was when we swear allegiance to the country, when we swear in as a soldier during our hashba'ah, our swearing in ceremony, we don't just swear in for our service in the army. It's a swear in for life. And I think that, you know, when you ask about acceptance about Ellie's death and the suddenness and ripped from us at this age, I always say that he would not have wanted to have gone in any other way. This love for Israel, this passion that he is now causing me to have as well. This incredible allegiance with what is going on here and the life of a Jew and the value of a life of a Jew and having a state is so ingrained in my children that there is this acceptance that we swear it for life. And I know this sound, this is very hard for, for a mother to accept. But when I say I'm proud of them for that, I feel that I'm proud of my children for having morals and values that are worthwhile and that are important, and they're important as Jews and are important as people. And when I read things about other people who have made these statements, it brings to mind my own children and how important they value these things. So these were kind of some of the things. And interestingly, I also read something about Golda Meir and how she was after the Yom Kippur War. And I, it makes me think about how things are going to be for this government after this war, please God, is over. And 
what they're going to be saying then, but I'm not going to take this on the political way because I'm not qualified to have this conversation and it will just be about things that I think, which I don't think are of value to mothers right now who are listening to this in terms of hearing my opinions. Well, your opinions are extremely valuable. It's a great source of sorrow for all of anybody who is a member of the human race, never mind the Jewish race, that you have had to endure such horrible suffering in order to help refine the thoughts that you already had. We're recording this at a time when we're nearly a week and a half into this murderous, unprovoked attack by Hamas, who are internationally recognised as a terrorist organisation. This is a fight between good and evil. This is not about territorial expansion or age-old need for land space. Your late son was a victim of the very people who themselves have now committed such acts of barefaced savagery and horror. We've seen some of the terrible things coming through on the media. What can you say to people who are trying to somehow in their minds be it for not necessarily political, but somehow trying to reconcile the very abyss to which human beings can fall into? You know, our good friend here, Noemi, is the daughter of Holocaust survivors herself. Her late parents would have known such things. You've had had this ringside situation where you've had an experience of the actual horrors of what human beings can do. Can you offer any kind of hope for humanity, bearing in mind that two years from losing your son, this horrible, horrible hatred, this vicious behaviour is still continuing? I think that we need to know in our hearts of hearts 100% that the land of Israel was given to us as Jews. We have to believe in the Torah, in what we learn, in the Bible. And we have to know that, please God, there have been many promises that have been made to us as Jews. And just this week's Torah portion and the Haftarah that is being read, the after Torah reading, talks exactly about this point as to what God has promised to the Jewish people. I'm quite, in a way, disconnected to what is going on at the moment in a strange way. I am not watching the videos that are being put out. I am not engaging in all the stories. And perhaps that's a protection for myself because I have seen it firsthand. I don't have capacity to take on and take in the horrors, the barbaricness, the hatred that is out there and that is going on. I can only say, and perhaps this is not kind of the answer you're looking for, that I am so disconnected at the moment in so many ways from that part of what is going on that I almost can't answer your question. It sounds very strange, but I haven't processed what's happened here in the last nine days. I can't process it right now. It is definitely causing me some triggers and there have been some strange feelings that I've had in the last week or so that have taken me back to my time. But I'm almost having these conversations that my children are out there fighting a war, but I'm completely disconnected. And therefore, I can only hope and pray that whoever is praying for us out there, because I'm struggling with the prayer at the moment too, so it's not just being disconnected from, I have no words for the for what has gone on. I'm struggling to connect to what I should be doing, which is the prayer and the psalms and everything else. And I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other at the moment. 
And I'm blessed to be in a community that has many soldiers who have gone in and we are all there for each other. I'm doing my bit and I'm fundraising and the this and the that. But it is, the enormity of this is so much that actually I don't think I'm processing. And therefore, I really can't tell you the answer to your question. I want to say that you have answered the question because it's also, you're dealing with it in your way and it's a powerful way and you're doing what you can. And I feel that um, you want to keep your spirit and your persona whole. And in order to keep it whole, you're doing what you can. You're very active, helping, sharing in the community. You will know some. It's not necessary to process that sort of thing. And I think many people, you'd be surprised, would share it with you. And it's something that you've said about the psychology, the new pathways. But it's also something that we haven't got control over the outside. But you are having showing a tremendous control over your inner self because you're creating your space where you can function and you can give strength to your children when they call you and to your community. And that's extremely powerful. We don't need the haters in our heart. And I think you're teaching us as mothers to not allow that to come in, but to say it's truly inspiring. I am in this world and I am dealing with it. And I'm normality maybe, but I, I am in a new normality and in, still in my positive bubble. And that's very helpful. And it's helpful to hear you. And, you know, we can't crumble at this time. And you're doing what you promised when Ellie was so cruelly taken from you. You're still keeping it together. And that's wonderful. And I gather from reading various things on the internet that you've done various things in Ellie's name since he was killed. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? All the projects that we hope to do and are, are trying to get up and running all have to do with um, uh, projects within Israel to give to the country and to take part in things, etc. Uh, certain things have been put on hold now while this war is going on, but in uh, we were supposed to, for his uh, the second anniversary of his death, we were going to do the dedication ceremony of the LEK Unity Torah that has been written. And that the purpose of the Unity Torah is that it's a small-sized Torah um, that was letters were brought literally by people all around the world to make up this Torah because the whole thing about Ellie was the unity that the world was so affected whether it was people in America we knew or Australia or the UK or South Africa I mean he really took the world by storm with this and we wanted people to participate in this but the whole thing of the unity Torah is that it's a traveling Torah because uh, when the youth groups come to Israel we want them to have this Torah with them when they travel the land because Ellie's absolute passion was traveling the land of Israel he wanted to do its length and its breadth. That every week he would go and he would travel and he would hear stories from him. And, and, and that was very, very important. So this Unity Torah is going to be dedicated, please God, in the next short while to a youth group organization in Jerusalem. And it's going to then accompany not only the kids in Israel, but it was scheduled to go to Poland four times a year as well with youth groups because ultimately the LEK story isn't just about the persecution of Jews in Israel now. It's also about what was our history, our present and our future. And we need to make sure that it goes to the history. It's in Israel with the present and it travels with our youth because they are our future. So that is one of the projects that we've now completed. There's also a um, piece of land that we have recently acquired and we are going to start planting on it and do an agricultural project because that was also Ellie's love and passion. And one of the nice things about that, not only are we doing wine where people can actually buy a vine with their family name on and that they have a piece of 
you know, a project to do with the LEK project. But when the youth groups come, we have this in an area where the youth groups are going to be able to visit and they're going to be able to partake in projects with, within that. So that's another project that we are getting off the ground. And please God, we will have grapes and we are, are doing a white label um, for the LEK project. And again, it's about working the land, loving the land, learning about people like Ellie and others in this area where this vineyard and other agricultural projects are taking place. And in addition, we, please God, will have at this hike site, Ain Prat, we're going to set up a, what they call here in Andarta, which is when you come to the end of the hike, often there's nowhere to kind of end it. And we, uh, the Friends of Ellie are looking to do a project where they, they, we're building a site and there's going to be benches and picnic tables and shade and uh, water available, etc. And there'll also be a uh, information button where you will hear the LEK story. And it's at a beautiful site looking over this gorgeous uh, land of ours where the hike will end. All of these projects obviously require funding and permission and uh, the permission we've we've now got for a lot of them. And we've set up a website, um, lek.org, where, you know, there's donation button if people want to partake in, in any of these things. And it's really about enhancement in the land of Israel and doing projects within this country that will make this country even more special than it is. And that's really just some of the things that we've done in this short time. Tavora, you're remarkable. As much as Ellie was somebody that we would have all been privileged to know, it's been a privilege to talk to you as well. You've taught us and all our listeners so much in this, even this short space of time. Before you go, the things about Jewish mothers that have come through the centuries is they were known for their, apart from their humour and their, their desire to feed us till we can't eat anymore, is their wisdom. If there was, say, one phrase or that, that you carry around with you, is there a mantra in your head or some, a phrase that you came from your own mum or that you've developed that you would share with people so they can have this phrase to walk with them? One thing that uh, jumps up at me that I use very, very often is you've got this because when things come our way, you have got this. You just need to grab onto it. You need to ride it whichever way it's taking you. And you know that you've got this because we as mothers, we have this. And we might not have it all the time and we may have those lows, but we need to recognize those and we need to embrace those. But we do know that whichever way it goes, we've got it. And we're there for our spouses and we're there for our children and our grandchildren because that is the nature of a mother and even more so of a Jewish mother. It's in our DNA and we've got this. You really have got it, Devora. So thank you so much for sparing this time, especially at this very challenging moment in Israel's history. You have been listening to the Jewish Mother Me podcast. My name is Angela Epstein. Naomi Lopian. And Lynn Dover. And you can find us all over the place. On Spotify. Instagram. Apple. All those different platforms. And on Facebook. And our carefully curated Instagram page where Lynn will very much happily receive any ideas, won't you? Or suggestions or yeah. subjects you might want us to cover or talk about. And just remember, we want to hear from everybody over the Jewish Mother Me podcast. And thanks to Phil Salter who brought you Jewish Mother Me on behalf of Northern Air Productions. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.